Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. If you are interested in learning more about our organization, please go to georgiamta.org. Today, we are joined by Owen Lovell. Hello, Owen. Uh, good morning, baby. It's really nice to be here. Let's get started. Tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So my name is Dr. Owen Lovell. I am an associate professor of music at Georgia College, uh, state's public liberal arts university in historic Milledgeville in central Georgia, where I am the keyboard area coordinator. Um, so I'm the head of the, the piano area. And um, my story's pretty straightforward, I guess. I don't know, everybody's story is different. Um, I started playing when I was five years old. Uh, I was just, every time I would visit my grandmother, there was an old upright piano in the basement and I just would play on it and play on it and play on it. And eventually my parents rented a U-Haul and took that piano from Pennsylvania to North Central New Jersey where I lived and put it in the living room at our house and I played on it. And um, at that time, it was the, the early 1980s, uh, racquetball was very popular as a sport. And my mother's racquetball partner came to the house uh, after they played uh, one day and saw me fooling around on the piano and said, you know, you really ought to give that kid lessons. And um, my mom's racquetball partner was a piano grad from Oberlin. <laughs> and so she was my first teacher. So through childhood and, and high school, I only had two teachers. Um, so Andrea Skerritt is her name. She's still alive, a great piano teacher in, in Bernardsville, New Jersey. Um, and uh, it was a, she just was a, a wonderfully comprehensive teacher from a, a technical side and musical side and uh, really had a knack for, with the younger student, you know, bringing them up through a progression of repertoire where they didn't even know what they were playing as hard. Sometimes we see that with younger students when they're just sort of surprised by, hey, look what you're doing when you're 10 or 11 years old. And if nobody tells them that it's difficult, they don't know that. <laughs> so I remember those challenging pieces uh, when you're 10 or 11, where I could barely reach the octaves and it's written with octaves and things like that. And so we moved to central New York state, um, Cortland, uh, which is a college town with a lot of dairy farming in the outskirts of the town. It's, it's a town not terribly unlike Milledgeville. Um, and then I uh, took lessons from a, a teacher named Trudy Borden, who was an Eastman grad. Uh, she passed away probably several years ago at this point. Um, and so that just brought me up through um, around the age of 16. Uh, I, I figured out that music was what I wanted to do. Um, and so I wanted to go to a conservatory um, and I ended up going to the Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore, part of Johns Hopkins University, where I, I was there for six years, both of my bachelor's and my master's degree in, in piano performance. Um, and my teacher there was a, a guy named uh, Boris Slutsky, who's still there on the faculty. And I believe he's also teaching at Yale at this point. Um, I was his first class of students. I got assigned to him by accident. We can come back to that later if you want to. Um, and uh, then uh, my, my doctoral degree I did at the University of Texas in Austin, um, where I studied with Greg Allen and Dr. Betty Mallard. Uh, and Greg Allen is still on the faculty there, and Betty Mallard is still in Austin, but is retired at this point. Um, so after that, um, 
as I finished up my doctoral degree, I wanted to get an academic job. And the first position I got was teaching class piano as a lecturer full-time at Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. And so I would teach five sections of class piano every semester. And I would oversee a couple of graduate TAs who were inevitably international students with English as a second language. And um, so I was there for three years and then a one-year position uh, at the University of Texas, San Antonio, um, where I replaced uh, a, a tenured professor who had, uh, who had left the school and got to do some of the other things on my resume that I hadn't gotten to do before, like teach applied lessons and teach piano literature and stuff. Um, so that was a year there. And then we left Texas and uh, for Western Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire, where I was on the faculty there for eight years um, and teaching uh, the same sort of things, applied lessons, class piano, piano literature and piano pedagogy for the first time, which was awesome, but a huge challenge. And then after eight years there, um, took this position here at Georgia College uh, because I was looking for to work in a smaller department um, where I had a little bit more autonomy over what was happening in the piano area um, and could try some of the things that I've always wanted to try. Um, and uh, also to be a little closer to my parents who are snowbirds at this point, bouncing between New York State and Florida. And so uh, my wife and I live here in Milledgeville. Uh, we have no children, no cat. Uh, yes, we're cat people. And um, uh, this is where we want to stay. Uh, the, we've had a great welcome from the university community, but from the, 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 the people who are really from Milledgeville in the local area as well, a great welcome from them. Um, and, and have sort of made a really nice life for ourselves here. And we have a really nice little piano studio here at the college. Great, thank you for that. Can we back up and talk about how you ended up in Boris Lutsky's studio? <laughs> uh, sure. I was supposed that uh, when I was accepted to Peabody, you, you had to indicate who you wanted as a teacher, sort of a first, second choice. They would assign you if you didn't make a choice, but just about everybody at that level is going to a conservatory to study with a specific person. And um, I was supposed to go there in 93 to study with Robert Wyrick who uh, eventually was at, went to Syracuse University and back to Peabody, and then eventually went to the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and has retired since then, and very well-known pianist and teacher as well. And uh, he had left uh, Peabody, and I didn't know that. And uh, I remember talking to the registrar's office or somebody at admissions, and they, they said, oh, you've been assigned to the studio of Boris Slutsky. And I remember as a 17-year-old little punk of a kid, saying to the admissions people on the phone, who the expletive is Boris Slutsky. Um, and so I, I think he was 29 or 30 from the time that I, when I first started studying with him, he was Aronoff's assistant at the Manhattan School of Music and driving down to, to Peabody one or two days a week um, in a totally clapped out old 1988 Ford Festiva with the oil pressure light. We used to have to fix this thing monthly just to make it so he could make it down on the trips. Uh, to Baltimore from New York City through the middle of the night. Um, he used to joke that he would keep himself awake by playing NWA cassettes like the rap group on, on the stereo, just to keep himself awake after teaching all day in New York and then driving down to Baltimore to crash on another faculty member's couch and teach us. So we were at first really a studio of the cast-offs, uh, the people that weren't as desirable um, you know, into the other studios or the people that didn't work out with the other teachers. So it, it 
it has been very interesting to see the progression of his studio from the cast-offs of everybody else's studio to a teacher who's really in demand. And, and when you see the international competitions, you see at least one of his students in the field every time at this point. But um, it, it is, he was a great teacher for me, even though I had no idea who he was at first. Um, and uh, yeah, we still stay in touch to this day. Great. Thank you for that. If we can back up um, to kind of the beginning of your story, what was practicing like for you as a child? Did your parents have to force you to do it or were you self-motivated? I was never, ever told to practice. I always just liked to do it. Um, I didn't practice an excessive amount of time and I wasn't ultra competitive about it, but I always enjoyed playing the piano and I always enjoyed practicing and I was never, you know, told you need to go do this for a half an hour or something like that. I just did it. Um, and so my family supported that financially throughout without any problem. And my grandparents would always come into the living room and sit and watch me practice every time they were visiting. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a different situation than what a lot of us run into as teachers with our students in terms of trying to set boundaries and try to motivate them to, to practice. And so that was really probably the, the, the biggest difference in my development from that of the typical students that we have all the time. Um, so you talk about entering into a conservatory um, and then you went on to this elite university. And I assume that you all of your degrees were in performance, correct? Yes, and they were. Was your ambition initially entering into these degrees to graduate and make a living as a performer, or did you already know in your mind that you wanted to be a teacher? Right. So um, I think this this is important for some of the younger teachers or students that are watching this to know is that I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly. I know I wanted to be in music. I know I wanted to be a pianist. I didn't know beyond that what that what form that was going to take. Um, and I didn't know that until really late on in my schooling, um, well into my grad school, until I knew really what I wanted to do with it. So at some point, yes, I thought it would be cool to compete and perform and be, you know, under management and that sort of thing. At different times, I thought I wanted to be a collaborative pianist. At different times, I thought I wanted to open up an independent music studio or be a college professor. So it, it was not clear until... Um, really quite late on in the degree. And uh, so don't, don't be worried about that if that's a place that you find yourself in. And even at this point in a fairly established position in career, um, I think if you polled a lot of us that, that, that are at this point in our careers, we, we still have self-doubt about a lot of things about what we're doing and whether we should be doing it or whether we should do something differently or whether we should completely change what we're doing. So do you remember what that point was in your learning where you took that commitment to teaching and teaching in higher ed? Um, yeah, I think the, the point I learned, I sort of like to generalize and say I learned most of what I knew, know about how to play from my time when I was at Peabody, but I learned the most about how to teach while I was at the University of Texas. And so at Texas, I had great mentorship and I had great opportunities to do things. So one of, the, one of the dirty little secrets of the sort of the flagship research one kind of universities is that a lot of the undergraduate coursework is taught by teaching assistants who are themselves learning, how, learning their craft of teaching. So um, I was, my first year at Texas was uh, 99 and um, Martha Hilly, the MTNA, outgoing MTNA president, 
um, was the head of class piano there at Texas, wrote a great uh, class piano textbook, by the way, I'll plug that and I still use it. Um, and uh, Professor Hilly came into a TA meeting and said, I need somebody to teach class piano um, immediately. And I raised my hand and said, okay, I'll do it. Thinking that, all right, I'm gonna just teach class piano one time, get it on my resume that I've done this. And that was gonna be the end of it. And what happened was I never stopped teaching class piano from 1999 until today. Um, it was not a thing that I thought I was interested in. Um, it was a class that uh, there was a piano major version of this at the Peabody Conservatory that I am not very proud to say that I failed. I failed tremendously this class. Both It was a, a perfect storm of, of my little bit immature attitude at that point in my life, sort of not a great skill set coming into school in terms of my theoretical knowledge and poor instruction. It was the perfect storm of bad. So I really wasn't motivated to teach this. But after that experience, I really enjoyed working with the music majors who weren't pianists and helping them develop their skills and, and take what they learned in theory and ear training and oral skills and incorporate that in a meaningful way on an instrument. So um, that was the thing that was great. I had another mentor there, Sophia Gilmson, who's retired at this point. Um, and Sophia Gilmson ran uh, a non-majors piano course where all those uh, students that grew up playing piano but are now other majors could take an elective and we got to teach those. So it was through great mentorship, really, that my love of teaching developed. And then just having great teachers at every stage of my development from childhood to teenage to undergrad to grad school um, and just sort of synthesizing and using those things and borrowing as appropriate, of course. Um, I, I'd like to chase a rabbit trail here since we're talking about class piano. And I think maybe um, a percentage of our listeners will um, encounter class piano as a setting that they've either worked in as a graduate assistant or will teach as a lecturer or adjunct or as a university professor. Can you talk us through a little bit about your evolution as a class piano instructor? How were you those first few years at UT Austin? And what are you now and what yeah. has changed? All right, so um, first off, I would say from a general point of view that I think it's very valuable, even if your primary goal is to teach privately, to do some group teaching. I think it's an important, I think it's important to switch modalities every now and then in teaching just to sort of make things stick or to come at them from a different perspective or even socially to help your students along in the experience. And that social aspect just couldn't possibly be more important than it is at this point in, in, in time. Um, so um, class group teaching is a very different feeling than private teaching mentally to you as a teacher. Um, the notion that you're kind of trying to figure out where's the high and the low end of your classroom's ability and how can you address a range of students all at once. Now, a lot of the classroom courses, I mean, they came about for economic reasons. It was easier to teach these basic skills to 12 students at a time than it was to pay somebody to teach them to people one at a time. So it's a huge challenge. Again, at first, when I was at Texas, uh, Professor Hilly had lesson plans completely mapped out for us that we could choose to stay with or we could choose to deviate from um, as long as we kind of arrived at the same place for the midterm and the final exam. This is a, a, something that I do even nowadays with part-time faculty who teach for me here at George College when they teach class piano. Um, so at first, I think the toughest thing was just learning how group teaching was different than private teaching and how to be effective. Um, 
my uh, when I would get in trouble in a group setting, I would start explaining what I wanted them to be able to do instead of actually explaining well, the steps to be able to do it uh, or walking them through the steps to be able to do it. So that was certainly a challenge that goes along with this. But um, I've also found I don't have a I, I don't have a large private studio at this point with my responsibilities at the college. But I've at different points in my career, I've had private studios or stepped in for other teachers who are on leave. And it's been very rewarding to go and teach a studio in a group setting and pick a topic. You know, we're going to talk about a composer or we're going to have little mini reports or we're going to teach you how to conduct and have other people play or we're going to play ensemble pieces or all kinds of different things that you can do this way can really round out the, the educational experience. So for those of you who are just doing one on one stuff, I would challenge you to consider doing the group teaching because it can really add a, a very interesting dimension. And I mentally I'll get pretty tired if I'm only teaching private lessons all day just the same way that I'll get pretty tired if I'm only teaching group classes all day. I enjoy having a balance of things that I'm teaching. It's a lot more satisfying way to go through life. Great. What would you say is the balance between talent and work ethic when it comes to determining success in a student? Um, so I think this is, an issue, this is a topic that's often misunderstood by non-musicians and well-meaning parents. Um, I, there is one of the things, one of the expressions that I find almost offensive is when somebody will say to me or another person, you're so talented um, when it comes to, you know, just being a performing pianist or something like that. And yes, of course, some natural ability helps, but so much more important to me is that commitment on the student level to putting in the work. Um, you're not going to succeed if you're just talented and you don't have the work ethic in this in this field. You're just not going to succeed uh, if you want to come into the academic realm or the competition realm. There's just too many of us that are kind of taking all of our degrees to the max or studying with the very best teachers in the world. And that's just not going to cut it by itself. So I would much rather have an untalented student with a great work ethic um, and, and work through their issues. Um, and it's it's more satisfying, too. Um, it sort of translates as well when, when we do master classes, a lot of times as college professors, um, students, uh, teachers will bring their best students to play for me in a master class, pieces that are already basically done and polished. And that's not as much fun, actually, from, from my point of view, as to take a student that would be motivated by the experience in a piece that's not quite done yet. Um, so I'm very strongly in the work ethic over talent uh, camp, um, and I suspect many of my colleagues would be the same. So tagging on to that question, what advice do you have for parents who have children taking lessons? How can they encourage and help them to succeed? Right. Well, first, um, you know, I appreciate the parents that want to support their students' musical educations. It's not something that we take for granted at this point at any level. Um, I think that finding balance is the biggest challenge. When you judge um, as many competitions and festivals as I do, and I judge for National Federation Music Clubs, Piano Guild, MTNA, GMTA, private scholarship competitions, um, more competitive things, the, we kind of notice a certain uh, a phenomena happen a lot. Many times when I'm judging 13 or 14 year old students, they actually play better performances than when I'm judging 17 and 18 year old students. 
And it comes from, it's just, you know, the, the most valuable thing that we have to give each other is our time and the time management aspect of it. So my, my advice to parents, honestly, is um, I think it's great if you want to support your child playing music and taking piano lessons. That's great. But probably not three instruments. One is fine. I think it's great if that your, your child wants to be physically active and do sports, team sports or something like that. That's great. But don't do four of them. Do one or two um, or clubs or things like that. That the, the tendency to load up the extracurricular activities by quantity instead of quality is something that hurt that it's a well-intentioned thing that I think actually hurts the, the students in the long run. So let's keep a reasonable amount of these things in, in a child's life and not overwhelm them with too many things. And then you actually have a better chance of them excelling at these different extracurricular activities if it's handled in much more moderately and not just piled on top of each other as sort of a, a, a huge quantitative list uh, only for the purposes of trying to get into an elite college, which is, I think, partially a fallacy in a lot of places anyway. Do you have any musical or pedagogical projects that you're currently working on? Um, from a performance point of view, um, right now, I just recorded the Aaron Copeland piano variations from home. Um, since all this COVID stuff happened, uh, we've all had to get pretty good at doing live streaming and recording ourselves. And so I built a pretty nice recording setup in my living room. I have a very nice uh, seven and a half foot grand piano. And so I, um, I started a YouTube channel in the last year. So if you look me up, I have four or five or six videos on there at this point, and I'm trying to build onto that. And, um, you know, since there were no concerts, that was the only way that I could sort of express myself uh, as a performer. And so we Facebook live streamed a concert that was supposed to be uh, in a concert hall at the end of March 2020 from my living room. And that was a weird experience, let me tell you. Um, you know, first of all, I'd spend three days. I'm also a part-time piano technician. I'd spend about three days just getting my piano ready, tuning it, and voicing it, and regulating it, and just getting it just so, setting up the recording equipment so it worked, testing all that gear to make sure that it would actually be reliable. Um, you know, when a lot of people are logged on and watching it. Um, and then giving the concert. And so I'm sitting there in a, in a tie and a dress shirt and slacks and my slippers, which are outside of the camera shot because nobody can see that. Um, and, you know, you play that concert and um, you have no idea what's going on while it's happening. My wife is sitting up behind the couch in the kitchen, sort of making sure that the computer is still running and every, the connection is still up. And then after it's all over, there's no applause and I just go take a drink of water and check my email. Um, it was a really weird experience, but we kind of all learned from this experience. Um, so I recorded the Copeland Variations, and I recorded it with three different camera angles. So one from the tail of the piano, and one looking at the performer in profile traditionally. And then I got a GoPro that we put some gaffer tape and taped it on a lamp, and we have an overhead shot of my hands. And so I have a huge editing project to put that all together um, and put that out on my YouTube channel. Um, also to go through the licensing part of that, because this is not a piece that's in the public domain. So I've had to go through the process of like learning how to get a synchronization license and figuring out how to pay for that and who to talk to. And so that's a big project um, that's done, but needs to be edited and put online. Um, the coming year, I'll be playing with a violinist uh, who's uh, on the faculty at the San Juan uh, Conservatory in Puerto Rico. And we'll play a few times uh, a program of both traditional violin and piano rep and Caribbean uh, violin and piano rep that I don't know so well. Um, 
And then I'll play that solo program that I did in my living room a few times in the spring. I'll play that in uh, Macon and I'll play it a second time in Tampa, Florida because of the GMTA uh, recital exchange that uh, is going on right now for the college faculty, which is a great thing, by the way. And uh, then we'll play it out in Washington State at uh, Washington State University in Pullman, Washington. Um, and so, I mean, my bucket list at this point, I want to do all the Schubert song cycles with great singers. I've done Winterreise with an excellent baritone. Um, if anybody's watching this, that's a really strong tenor and wants to do uh, Die Schöne Müllerin, I've got it learned in the tenor, the higher voice, uh, ready, to, ready to rock. And I'm just looking for the, the right tenor to do that with the whole set. And so that's a, a big passion of mine. I've been always a big Schubert uh, a file since I was in college. Um, and uh, on the pedagogy side, probably the biggest project that's going on right now, um, I mean, it, it has to do with mentoring my own piano majors here and piano minors. Um, so we have a program, an after-school program called Bobcat Keys. Um, it's now called BASF Bobcat Keys because we have a corporate sponsor, BASF. It operates in Wilkinson County, so a couple a county to our south um, at Wilkinson County Elementary School. And so what we've done is um, we have excellent facilities at Georgia College. We have uh, new pianos on the concert stage, new pianos in the practice rooms for the piano majors, uh, a new piano lab in 2017. And when we got rid of the old equipment in 2017 because it was obsolete, I actually saved the best three, four, five digital pianos, cleaned them up, tried to fix them up a little bit, and I put them in storage. And so what we wanted to do with Bobcat Keys is we wanted to reach out to students that would not have access to a piano teacher and would not have access to a practice piano even and reach that population and do an after-school program. So we brought these old pianos out of storage and we, we had a, one of our service sororities brought them down to Wilkinson County. So the students have instruments to practice on. Um, we, we, tr we transport them one time a week up to the Georgia College campus where they study in our state-of-the-art facilities. And they're taught in a group setting by um, my piano majors who have taken the pedagogy courses. And these are, you know, these are students that have an interest in teaching, regardless of what their major is, regardless of what their career is, they understand that, that, that music teaching is gonna be a part of who they are and who need to kind of learn more about that experience. And you can't learn that from a, I mean, you can learn things in the classroom setting, but you learn a lot more by actually doing it. And group teaching, as we talked about before, is so different. They rarely get the chance to do it. So this gets a chance for my college students to do a service project for the community and help their teaching and help those students in the community and their families. are, uh, And we sort of culminate that with a big uh, concert in our concert hall on the $150,000 Steinway. And it's a really, it's a great experience for everybody involved. It runs every other year right after the pedagogy course once a week um, in the afternoons. And it, it works out really great. BASF uh, is, as the corporate sponsor, they operate a lot of mining operations in Wilkinson County. They're a big employer there. So they've they're covering the cost of transportation to bus the students up to Georgia College every week. They're covering costs of the music books that we use. They cover the costs of even the t-shirts that we've uh, commissioned for it. So it's a great project for everybody involved and we all have a great time with it. That sounds fabulous. How, may, how many students are you able to recruit uh, students as in the learner students each time? So the elementary school students who are, the, the, who are taught in the Bobcat Keys program, um, we have a capacity of 11 
because we use the class piano lab as the teaching space and that's how many stations we have with enough room. Um, and then the Georgia college students who are teaching, we do on a rotation. So each hour session of Bobcat Keys, two of the piano majors will teach. They'll still have a half an hour segment each and we'll have a third student kind of float around the back of the room as sort of a tutor. And then we uh, can also take them up to the practice rooms if we need to pull a student out to give them extra help. Um, and, um, and then I'm just basically there to observe. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very interesting experience to not teach and watch your students do the teaching. What a wonderful project to undertake for you and for your students. That's interesting to hear. Now, tell me about your time in GMTA and MTNA. How did you hear about the organization and what has being part of this organization meant to you? So I, I heard about the organization through, you know, mentors and pedagogy classes, more or less. Um, and it's been very, very useful to me. And at, at this point in my career, um, my connection to GMTA, um, I was the, the vice president of programs in 2019. I was the college faculty chair in 2017, 2018. And I'm the outgoing president of the Macon Music Teachers right now. Um, the This community, to me, the, the biggest value is actually on the local level and the state level more than the national level. I haven't really engaged with it so much on the national level. But um, when I teach my pedagogy classes, I have support from my MTNA members in the area um, from people who have forgotten more than I'll ever know about setting up a studio policy or marketing for a private teaching studio or talking about, you know, what do you do in the first lessons with a beginner or comparing how is this method different from this method book versus from this method book and why would you pick one for a certain student? Um, it's been so helpful um, and so just so useful to me to have this network of people who are willing to learn and to share. And I think the equality part of that is how you do the MTNA membership best, that you want to, you want to use the things that are available to you. You want to use some of the grants you want to take, you want to go to the conferences and learn, but you also want to give because everybody has something that they can share. And I think that spirit is what makes a good local and state MTNA chapter work well. So when I taught pedagogy, which I do on an every other year rotation in my small program here in Milledgeville at Georgia College, I had eight guest presenters in my pedagogy class. We did a rotation. We would teach the Monday class was a lecture. The Wednesday class was a practicum where we uh, engaged with some homeschool families and taught in a practicum. Um, so those students got a little bit of one-on-one -on -one teaching experience for their first time in a, in a supervised setting. But those lecture days, it, they, they don't need to hear from me on every single topic. And they don't need to hear me regurgitate something from a textbook when I can have an expert come in either virtually because of COVID or distance or in, in person. So when we have that class, the, the students really love having the guest speakers. And it's been, a, it's been such a helpful, such a godsend for me to have um, my GMTA and MMTA uh, partners be willing to share that way. So that's really where it comes in. Um, of course, in some sense, you know, my, my association with the group has a recruiting angle as well as I look to try to find a students that would be a good fit for my program. But I try not to make it about me and I try not to make it about that all the time. I really do enjoy the shared partnership and, and that, that feeling of equality. 
As you reflect on your career, which you've had by many people's definition, a successful career, um, if you had a chance to redo your life and your career choices, what would you change or not change about them? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. Um, you know, if I was going to stay in as a pianist and do go the trajectory that I have gone, I really should have worked harder my first few years of my undergraduate degree. I had incredible teachers and incredible pianists around me, and I didn't really engage with that completely and fully and wholly and with everything that I had. And I think I could have been an even stronger pianist had I done that a little bit better. Sometimes you don't realize what you have in front of you until it's gone as the cliche goes. And, 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 and in that way, I really wish I would have gotten it together a little bit sooner. I'm sort of a late bloomer uh, in terms of just having the right academic, right mindset to be an academic for sure. So from that point of view, for sure. Um, in the early parts of my career, um, I think I should have said yes to more things. <laughs> Um, a lot of times when we're just getting started out and somebody takes a, some, a more experienced person might take a liking to what you or what you do and will offer opportunities to you. And sometimes you don't even realize it's happening at the time. And a lot of the things that have happened that were good for me were just by taking a risk and saying yes. Or, you know, when I wasn't happy about something in my career, about taking a risk, just taking a risk and, and, and taking a risk to change what you're doing or to change where you are. Um, that uh, I should have been perhaps more eager to do that than I have. You know, if I would have not been a pianist at all, I'm really not sure what I would have done. It probably would have been, it, this is an odd job for a lot of us. This is one of these sort of passion projects of a job where you kind of live your work. You, uh, a lot of us um, who are academics because of the you know what's required of us um, even have very small families or no kids at all because of the demands that the job has on us. Um, from from just a, a personal point of view. And so it would be really different. To, it would be interesting to feel like what a nine to five job would be where you can sort of hang up your work on your way out the door. Uh, so I've, I've never known what that felt like. Um, but, you know, by way of encouragement to other members and and to students who are coming up and, and less experienced teachers, um, you know, I would just say that the line between this feeling of success and failure is a really small line. And that you can, you know, I have days where I have what I consider failures and you just gotta keep getting up again and then you have the successes and then it's not even, everything's not successful all the time. Not all of my concerts are great. Not all of my lessons are great. Not all of my service projects work the way that I intend them to, but it's just, you know, have the tenacity to keep getting up and just keep doing it and keep trying um, and know that, that, that idea of a little bit of self-doubt or that idea that I'm not going to make it or just questioning, you know, whether you're, you're even doing the right thing that that happens to all of us at all levels. And uh, I think, again, having some people, like-minded people in an organization like GMTA to talk to about that can kind of go a long way in, in helping your confidence along and just sort of helping reinforce the choices that you're making. I want to piggyback on that because I, I'm a strong believer that living on the edge of failure and success 
is the most exciting place to be. Um, if you're always guaranteed success, then you know that you're you're not doing life right. You're you're definitely stepping within your comfort zone and not venturing out. If you're constantly committing to projects where you know you'll fail, like that's not sustainable. But living, finding that that edge between failure and success, and sometimes failing and sometimes succeeding, and having a healthy mixture of both is probably the best place to yeah. be. Well, you, you stated that even better than I possibly could. And I, I think that applies to everything. Like the, the pieces that I choose to bring into a recital, I always make sure there's at least something new on each new recital program that I play. Not the whole program. I don't practice enough to be able to do that anymore, but at least one new thing to have that experience when you're learning a piece of, man, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to do this results in a much more feeling of euphoria when you can, when you get to that point. Um, and the same thing probably goes for teaching. I actually enjoy not teaching the same repertoire. Um, so I will challenge myself with every single student I teach every year to at least do one thing that I've not taught before with each of them. And yeah, okay, it might not be the most efficient teaching process because I'm finding my way through that too, but I think it's a lot more satisfying. And I think that the point that we think we've got it all figured out is the point that we should probably hang it up and quit. So this is going to be our last question. What are your goals for your students and what are your goals for yourself? When, when they come here, uh, I'd like to challenge every single one of them to do things that they didn't think they could do. And I think that the, the notion of feeling a bit of a challenge is an important aspect of good teaching. It's not to punish anybody, it's not to threaten anybody, but when students come into my program, um, they know that in their first semester, the fall semester at the end of week six, there's going to be a studio recital and they're going to play a memorized piece that's brand new to them on that recital. And so I think having that, having, um, you know, to set ambitious challenges for your students is an important thing for them all to experience. And it's not because I'm trying to make them into performers. The majority of my students, I, I teach in a, in a program, uh, there are only two accredited programs in the state of Georgia that have a music therapy degree. And my school, Georgia College, is one of them. And so half of my students are music therapy students who will perform, but not in the same way that we traditionally think about performance. But I want them to have that feeling of, you know, to go through the process, to find multiple solutions to a problem, to have you know, failure in a performance situation and then figure out what they need to do to have success in that performance situation and go through that whole progression. I feel like this is a skill that to borrow from pedagogy term can transfer to so many other things that we do in life and to learn to discipline oneself, to work independently and all those things that we do as, as pianists. So that's, that's really important. Then once you break out of that general pedagogical realm ephemera. And, and then we start looking at each of the students and what they want to have happen in their careers and to make sure that I feel like I'm doing my part to set them up for success, that when they graduate from my program, they're either going to be able to get admission into a grad program in a specialized area that they're interested in, or that they can hang up a shingle and start up a studio if they want to do that, or if they will take their therapy certification at the undergraduate level and go out and start working with their clients and group and one-on-one one settings. And so in addition to the repertoire that I teach, I always have, you know, some sort of technique thing that they're working on, but that technique thing will often get adapted to what the students want to do uh, career-wise. And so, you know, all of a sudden we start doing some more lead sheet notation, or we start doing vocal warm-ups, or we start multitasking and trying to talk and play or whatever that's going to be. So start to look at what the students want to do with their careers. 
um, and try to guide them that way. Um, and also, I think it, it also comes down to who we choose to admit into the program and whether they're a good fit for even what we present here and what we offer to students here. So it's sort of a cradle to grave kind of thing. And then afterwards, at the end of you know, the student's time with me, and, and you've had this happen, I'm sure, Bebe, as well, where the students are in touch with you for advice, they're in touch with you for recommendations, and you know, being able to follow through and help that student get that advantage that they need to get their first position, to get that chance to prove themselves. Um, in a competitive world like this, I feel like we have a responsibility as teachers to help the students that have done and held up their end of the bargain to, to give them the advantages that they deserve to get that good first start, to allow them to be able to prove themselves and then, and then go independently from there with our support. There was a second part to the question, which is what are your goals for yourself? Maybe speaking career wise, what do you hope to be able to see when you get to the end of your career looking back um, in terms of accomplishments? Well, I think it would be cool for some of my current students to refer students to me. I think it'd be neat to have sort of multi-generational studio referrals, which I'm not quite old enough yet to have that happen, but I'm getting close to that point at this this time, I suppose. Um, So that that would be sort of fun. Um, I would love to be involved in an interdisciplinary course and teach an interdisciplinary course, because I've never done that, actually. Um, I want to you know, I want to take my performing to higher levels as I can. So we're always looking for more opportunities to play great chamber music with great people or solo programs and interesting places. Or, you know, I'd love to get invited to the Spoleto Festival in Charleston and play or something like that. And so just trying to up my own, you know, game from the point of view of the, the stature of the venues where I get to play or the chances that I get to perform. I still want to challenge myself that way. I'm not ready to just sort of rest on old programs quite yet. Awesome. Thank you, Owen. Thank you for your time. Thank you for this conversation. I've enjoyed listening to your wealth of expertise and knowledge. And so thank you for sharing your life with us. I wish you happy teaching and happy students. Oh, that's so sweet of you. Thank you again for the opportunity. And I appreciate uh, the GMTA members for their membership and, and wish everybody a healthy summer and a normal fall.